happy Pride, everybody. Happy Pride. Welcome, everyone, for our special program tonight on Aging in Community, Strategies for LGBTQ Seniors and Beyond. I'm John Zipperer, the Commonwealth Club's Vice President of Media and Editorial, and I am pleased to be your co-host for tonight's program. Let's meet our panelists for tonight. I'm going to start right next to me with Grace Lee. She's the CEO for Unlock. So welcome, Grace. Thank you. Happy to be here. And right next to her is Dr. Karen Skultetti. Did I get that right? You got it. You yeah. nailed it. I was afraid I wouldn't be able to pronounce it. <laughs> <laughs> She's the executive director at Open House. Glad to have you here, doctor. Thank you. And uh, next to her is Dr. Jason Flatt. He's an assistant professor in residence at the Institute for Health and Aging at the University of California, San Francisco. Also a faculty member at the UCSF uh, Health Force. So welcome. Yeah. Hi, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> and next to him is Tom Grotha. He is a nurse practitioner with Kaiser Permanente South San Francisco. So, Tom, thank you for joining us. <laughs> and last but certainly not least, our co-host is Michelle Miao. She's the host and producer of the Michelle Miao Show, which is sponsored by Kaiser Permanente. Michelle, thank take you. it away. Yay. Thank you so much. Well, thank you, John, and thank you all for being here. Uh, your, the Michelle Miao Show is your A through Z, covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between. <laughs> We're here every Thursday afternoons, actually at noon, in which we do a, a, a program that is inclusive of the LGBTQ community, but addresses social justice issues with an intersectional approach. And tonight we have a special program, and I'm very honored to be up here with these great panelists. And really, honestly, what a perfect time to have this conversation as we also recognize and celebrate 50 years uh, since the Stonewall liberation. So that tonight's program is really also dedicated for many of you, you know, who, whether you sat in a bar, uh, you came out at a time in which it might not have been what it is today, uh, we, you wrote a magazine article, you were interviewed, you told your story. All of that contributes to this opportunity that we're here today to, to also talk about what the next 50 years of our movement might look like. So thank you. Mm-hmm. So let's start our program. And um, let's start very easy. And we'll, we'll begin with Tom, in which uh, introduce yourself and just a little bit, maybe take a minute to talk about the work that you do and the organization you serve with. Uh, great. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. And um, I work as a clinician. I provide primary care to homebound seniors. Um, so I think that's one of the reasons I'm here. I've worked for Kaiser for 22 years. It's a great organization to be part of, partially because of the inclusion that I experience as a gay man at Kaiser. Uh, you know, uh, HRC has given Kaiser a 100% score for the last 13 years consecutive as a great place to work. We uh, support the community. We're a major funder of the Pride uh, uh, Parade. Uh, we support Michelle and hers or, or um, podcasts. We support the GG, uh, the Golden Gate Business Association, Positive Health Resources. We, we've, we're in a number of places to support our community. Um, what we're here to talk about today and what I'd like to sort of share my experience on is getting older and how to uh, provide care and honor people's wishes and work with your clinicians, your primary providers, in uh, assuring that your goals are met as you age in home. So um, Kaiser has a number of initiatives around that that we're, we're trying uh, to stretch in how to provide that care. Um, everyone at Kaiser has a primary care provider, and that's one of the people that we encourage everyone in our community to speak with about your wishes. And um, if you are in Kaiser and you might land in the hospital, 
uh, if you're of an advancing age or have a chronic or progressive disease, it's likely now in every Kaiser in Northern California region that you will be offered a palliative care consultation. And during that consultation, it's going to usually consist of a team of people, a geriatrician or a palliationist, a social worker, a clinic nurse specialist, a chaplain. And we're going to talk to you about how things are going. And usually when you're in the hospital, there's been a sentinel event, there's something that's happened, you're not well. We need to sort of look at what's, where do we go from here and how do we help? So one, one, this is an interactive conversation where we want to hear from the patient and their family as to what you want and what your goals are in the future. Um, a major portion of that is something called an advanced directive. How many people in the room have an advanced directive? Wonderful. This is vital. And for those of you who don't, I encourage you, Kaiser or not, to speak to your primary provider. Have this discussion. An advanced directive is where you say what you want as you get sicker or older, and also who you identify to speak for you when you cannot. And this is absolutely vital in our community because a lot of times our families of choice are as important or more important than our biological family. And if we have this document that says, this is who I want to speak for me when I can no longer speak for myself, that's really vital for your care providers to know who to turn to so that we can honor your wishes. Um, so an advanced directive is really vital. Um, my program is just one of the many initiatives that Kaiser is rolling out in trying to figure out how do we help people stay well and healthy and in their home. And uh, in my program, uh, we didn't know how successful it would be, but when I started it in 2004, I just took a few people who were homebound. In Kaiser South San Francisco, we now have over 400 patients who are homebound with five NPs and two social workers providing the bulk of this care where we become the primary medical provider. This is kind of an innovative program, because if you can't get in to see your provider, it's difficult to talk to them about your care wishes. I, I think that all of us kind of imagine or wish that when we become 95 years old, we might go to sleep at night and not wake up. Um, but many of us in this panel probably know that's not exactly how it's going to go for the majority. And so one of what we're trying to figure out to, to do is how do we help people plan for the future and anticipate what might happen, and how do we all work together to assure that your needs are met and your wishes are honored? And we're going to – yeah, that is so awesome and so great. And thank you for that. And we're going to get – really deep into it yeah. in the next half hour before we turn it to the audience to ask questions. So be thinking about them. Jason. Sure. Hi, everyone. I'm Jason Flad. I'm an assistant professor. I'm at UCSF in the School of Nursing and in the Institute for Health and Aging. And I'm a researcher. I have training in public health, and I also identify as a gerontologist. And a lot of my work really focuses on understanding some of the unique issues for our LGBT seniors. Uh, so some of the work that I'm doing right now, uh, one of the big projects that's funded by the National Institutes of Health, and it's looking at dementia risk among LGBT people. And it's unique in that we're using data from Kaiser Permanente, the Northern California region, to do some of the first work to look at what does risk look like for our community? And also, what are unique risk factors? So, for instance, we know our community is more likely to live alone, so we'll be exploring that. But we also know there's mental health concerns like risk of depression. So we'll be exploring and trying to understand how do these risk factors play out over time and how do they impact people's risk for dementia. So that's one of the projects. Uh, another one of the projects I've gotten to do, which is really amazing and really builds on my work with community-engaged partnerships and research, is with Open House. So we're actually doing one of the first studies to look at Open House's new housing, 95 Laguna. 
and look at how does inclusive and affordable housing impact the health, but also healthcare access for LGBT seniors. So we're actually following people over a year and going to be asking them questions about how does living in an inclusive environment affect not only their physical health, but their social life and also their access to care. So that's a piece. And then today what you're going to hear about is one of our really unique projects where I've partnered with Open House and Onlock to look at creating the first social adult day health program for LGBT seniors in California. And so what we've done is some needs assessment work where we've interviewed over a hundred LGBT seniors who would be using these services. So we've done group interviews, we've done surveys, and really we're looking at finding what do we need to create? What should this environment look like? But also what are the services that are going to be important for LGBT seniors? So that's really a lot of the focus of the work. And so we'll touch more on that. The last thing I just wanted to do is really give credit to my community partners, Open House, Karen Scoltetti, Onlock, Grace Lee here. But also I wanted to point out a few people on our team that are important. So Matt Beld is our program director who really helps to lead this work. Uh, Amy Mack, also a PhD student at the School of Nursing, has really been helping us to do this. And it wouldn't be possible without everyone's contributions. So, thank you. I'm up. After school, Teddy. <laughs> Karen. <laughs> needs no introduction. <laughs> Hi, everyone. I'm Karen Scolteddy. I'm the executive director of um, Open House. And Open House is a nonprofit that provides housing, services, and community for LGBTQ seniors. Um, and I like to say that we we create with not for um, LGBTQ seniors, the world that they um, want and deserve to age into. Um, yeah, so we opened the first LGBTQ welcoming affordable senior housing in 2016, um, and we're about to open, we're in the process of opening our second building um, right now, um, which will include a much larger space um, for services in addition to the 79 units of, of affordable housing that, that we're opening. Um, we're going to talk about a lot of things um, today, and you've already heard a lot of uh, really important points brought up by by these folks. Um, and I think one of the things that's really important to know and to think about is one of the things we know about LGBTQ seniors is that they aren't using the services that we currently have available. So we see pretty dramatic underutilization of available aging services. Um, and the question we have to ask ourselves is, why is that? San Francisco is a city that has a lot of aging service providers. Um, we're a city that's known for our thriving LGBTQ community. Um, and yet we still see a real lack of engagement from the community. And so the some of the work that we're doing with Onlock, the work that we're doing with Jason, the work that we're doing with the community um, is to solve that to solve that problem and to figure that out. How do we change services so that they work? And that's Open House's role is to be that bridge to make services really, really work. Um, and so we can talk about all kinds of different ideas that we have about that. But um, I think that that's such an important conversation for us all to take on together um, and to really create programs and services that we deserve to have. Um, and guess what? If we do that, we're going to improve services for everybody um, across across the city because um, we're really smart and we'll just figure it out together. So. <laughs> and thank speaking you. of smart people, I was here's say, Grace Lee. Thank goodness for smart partners. <laughs> um, hi, I'm Grace Lee. I'm the CEO of Onlock. I've been a part of Onlock for uh, over 18 years, and I'm really proud of the organization that I represent. Um, Onlock has a nearly 50-year history as, uh, as a community-based organization and provider here in San Francisco. Um, Onlock means happy, peaceful abode or happy, peaceful home in Cantonese. And most people could probably say, oh, I think I've seen your vans or your buses. And so <laughs> most people then think we're a transportation company, and we are. <laughs> lots in of fact, if anyone of, needs a ride home tonight, <laughs> uh, lots Grace of frail old people yeah. that we, uh, seniors, that we help to transport to and from. And that's actually like one of the most important services often people need is to mm -hmm. be 
able to access their services. And so Unlock in its, uh, in its family of nonprofit organization, not for profit organizations actually has, um, recognized there are so many important needs that seniors have. We have the, uh, PACE program, which is the program of all-inclusive care for the elderly, uh, is, is a, is a program that Unlock actually pioneered and it has, um, back in 97 became part of the federal legislation to be a permanent provider of Medicare programs, pen Medicare services and an option for Medi-Cal. So our target population is serving, um, dual eligible seniors, uh, who are nursing home eligible or at risk of, uh, being placed in a nursing home and really if they had the opportunity with the right support could stay living at home. On the other end of our continuum, we have the 30th Street Senior Center, and uh, we're really excited about the kind of work that they've done. They'll be celebrating 40 years this year. Um, and so we think about this, the spectrum of seniors that we touch through our programs, well-active, engaged, self-directing seniors about health and health and wellness and promotion, health promotion, all the way to our frail seniors. And so our opportunity now continues to be how do we increase access and create programs and services for people uh, in the middle. Um, we also have uh, independent housing for, for low-income seniors. And again, our co-founders really recognize the importance of having supports when you're aging in place and living uh, independently in the community. So uh, when we had this opportunity to uh, partner together with Karen, it was actually a really easy yes. Um, Onlock's beginnings were really about uh, meeting a uh, creating a solution for an unmet need. And uh, we're really proud about the opportunity to bring our expertise in uh, both medical, social service supports, and care for seniors across the continuum um, to a new population that really is in uh, need for some support. So we are happy and proud to be part of this uh, journey. John? Um, we were talking actually a bit in the green room before this program about almost – jumping off what we're talking about, 50 years since Stonewall and everything, and all the generations of LGBTQ folks who have, some folks who have experienced all of that, others, you know, portions of that. Um, and I'm, I'm kind of wondering, this is a question maybe for any or all of you, are you finding different generations as they're getting older that they have different expectations about what they want and what they can expect um, for their senior years? I yeah. think Dr. Skull Teddy will start with you, Karen. <laughs> Just call me Karen. <laughs> Rainbow shoes can take this one up. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think that it's it's really complicated, and Michelle and I have had a lot of really great conversations about um, all the different communities that all of us are a part of um, that end up influencing what we think about aging, what we think about the world, what we want in our healthcare. Um, so generations are part of that. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, race is part of that. And, um, um, our social economic status is part of that. Um, there's massive differences in what, um, trans people are experiencing mm -hmm. in, um, the world. And if you're not talking about that, this pride, um, let it be the thing that you walk out of here talking about. Um, and, and so, um, I, I think it's, I, I think it's, it's more complicated than generations. And that said, it is very interesting as we start to really dig in and have these amazing conversations and work with Jason on these interviews. Mm -hmm. um, I think that there are some of the difficulties that LGBTQ seniors have in accessing services is less about blatant homophobia and transphobia. There's plenty of that out there. Don't mm -hmm. worry. It's alive and well. But... Um, but more subtle cultural differences that have been developed as part of the LGBT community that really don't line up very well with some of our traditional approaches in senior services. And I, I say that as a person who has enacted a lot of those traditional um, ways of being. Um, you know, we have a tendency to be very... Um, uh, we're going to take care of you. Now, don't you worry, Grace, I'm going to take care of you and give you, you know, and, and 
Um, I promised the BAR I would swear, so I'm <laughs> waiting for when my moment's going to be on that. But, you know, as activists who started the LGBTQ movements, we're like, don't tell me what I fucking need. Like, yeah. I, I, my life has been about fighting for what I needed, right? I lived through the AIDS crisis where no one was listening to what we needed, and we stood up and screamed and yelled and laid on the Golden Gate Bridge until people paid attention to what we need. So um, senior services, which are very much set up to sort of assume what you need and are created without the input often of the community, again, from a well-intentioned, high-quality place, um, that, that's one of those places I think that that's part of the cultural um, issue that we're seeking. Um, you know, seeking help from people who you're not sure if they're you know, to be trusted or not, the impact of trauma on our community. I mean, I, I think that all of those things are playing out in service delivery in some really interesting ways. And, and I think the first, first, first thing we've got to change is don't talk about senior services first on what people need. Talk about who these people are, right? LGBTQ seniors should be central in our lives and in our fight for social justice. They're the leaders of our movement. And so when they need something, we step up and make sure they have it versus LGBTQ seniors. They're very frail and isolated. So we provide them services, right? Like, again, forget that. That's not the, that's not what's happening here. That's not the dialogue. Um, and our community conversation about that has to shift, um, so that we can then go on and we, we can be just as activist -y around this as we've been around so many other things. So yeah, I don't, <laughs> don't get me started. Yeah. <laughs> Grace, I, I want to follow up on what, no, 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 this is, yeah, what she said. I'm already crying and, and tearing, you know, um, uh, his, this conversation, by the way, isn't addressed to one demographic and very specific to age in our community. I mean, we as LGBTQ members, now is the time that we start thinking about these things, right? That we are, um, we've advanced in terms of our, our movement and our rights, our fight for equal rights. So to follow up on that, you know, Grace, being a part of an organization that's over 40 years old mm -hmm. and that has provided for the aging community, sometimes like when we talk about the LGBTQ community, sometimes you talk about the community as if it's an emerging community, like we're new. We're not. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> probably, yeah, been around for um, uh, since wine was probably discovered. Um, <laughs> That's when we showed up. Yeah. <laughs> but I'd love to hear, you know, from Grace, uh, yeah, how, how addressing the needs of LGBTQ uh, seniors and now that, you know, we are able to be out more and maybe there are more opportunities and research and data as, and, well, I can't wait to hear from Jason, but you have more now today than you did 40 years ago. And so being a part of an organization who was there for the, the aging community 40 years ago mm -hmm. and where you're at today, mm -hmm. how is everything that Karen had said, how does that impact your organization and what changes you know, are, do you see the organization making and are you getting enough in order to be inclusive of yeah. the LGBTQ yeah. community? Well, you know, I think that as we learn about any community, there are traditional uh, values or cultures that every group brings. Mm -hmm. And I think that certainly in our beginnings, really learning and understanding and identifying with Chinese, Filipino, and Italian seniors in the North Beach Chinatown part of San Francisco, um, through our growth of our PACE program and our actually our senior center program, we've continued to reach out to and support and serve very diverse communities. And so as we're embarking on this opportunity to reach out to and educate ourselves, we're working very closely with Open House um, to do an organizational assessment to help us identify where things that Maybe we should have had or be, or, you know, be familiar with it in place, but don't. And so how do we up-level ourselves in advance and in readiness to be able to serve um, this, this population? It's new for us. It's not new in the community. It's not new for the kinds of needs. But how do we learn and understand so our care is sensitive in the way that um, people want to be treated? And we see the same thing as we've grown down in the southern southern part of uh, Santa Clara County and in the East Bay, lots of other new uh, communities that we've never served before, uh, East Indian, um, you know, uh, 
Iranian, uh, you know, other communities, Vietnamese communities. So there are things that even those cultural differences among Asian groups are different. And so we're trying to always better ourselves and hire staff. I think that that's one of the key things that we've recognized and know because it's authentic. It's identifying and relating to your own peer group uh, in many ways. And so for our ability to really have um, a clarity about that, I think, is what keeps us uh, really focused on making sure that the the care and the thought that we bring forth to serving our communities and our seniors um, is really true. I read an article earlier about a woman in, I think, suburban Chicago, or Chicago, but she ended up in a suburban assisted living situation after her partner of 30 years passed away. Mm-hmm. So she found this assisted living place for it was affordable, moved in there. Once people started to find out that she was lesbian, she started getting spat upon. People hit her, obviously made comments about her. She complained to the administrators. They did nothing. She sued. Um, this is actually a question both for how do you, is there some way that someone who's looking to move into a place like this or, uh, you know, is assisting a friend or family member into moving into a place to know that it's LGBTQ friendly, but also, and, and for Tom, for, are there, you know, it's similar, is there some sort of directory or grid way to find out that, you know, services that help you age in place are LGBTQ friendly? You're not going to end up with someone who's going to be abusing either you or the, your loved one, your, your friend, family member. Um, those are good questions, and uh, that goes along in a general sense about planning and anticipating your needs. Uh, it's generally a good idea not to end up in the hospital and realize you can't go home and don't know where to go because then your husband or spouse or partner or friend is trying to find someone and you're under pressure to do that. So part of uh, the exploration of that is in the future, what might I need? And if it is a residential care, board and care, uh, living environment, you need to look into them and try and get a vibe. Um, I, my care area of service is, uh, Daly City and South San Francisco, and there are 260 board and cares uh, just in that service area. And a lot of people do need this care and often stumble into it. So you do need to look around and ask your families and friends if they know folk uh, close by. Um, Ask your care provider who may have some experience with uh, possible uh, good environments. Um, Beyond that, it, it really is a difficult experience experience. Uh, Generally, I find um, I have cared for many LGBTQT people in Borden Cares in my service area, and it's gone okay. I haven't heard a terrible story like that. But whenever you get outside of your home and your culture and your people, it's scary and it's hard. And uh, so I think that possibly there's room for improvement around support, which is what my other panel members are doing, is reaching out to the Borden Cares with volunteer and um, just folk who can check in and recreate community. I think that could be some opportunities there. Good. Yeah, I mean, there isn't the answer to the question. There isn't a list that says these are the LGBTQ friendly. There is some some work that um, Sage, who's in New York um, and a similar organization, Open House, and who we have a close partnership with, they're um, they're doing some work with HRC to develop something that would be similar to the. Um, um, the assessment that that Kaiser that you were talking about earlier, um, but um, I, you know, I, I'll just tell you that at this moment, and, and I think it's important that you know um, stories like that aren't just happening in um, the Midwest or right. Chicago, right? So, eighty percent of um, LGBTQ seniors in San Francisco say that they would think about going back in the closet if they had to move into an assisted living or a nursing home facility, a high percentage report witnessing staff or other people um, discriminating against someone that they knew who was in a, in a facility. And, and um, what I'll say, and this will be the challenge I can put out through the, through the airwaves is there, there isn't an assisted living um, yet in San Francisco who for me has again, stepped forward and said, 
we'll develop a deep partnership, not you can come one time and train and everyone will sign the sheet and woo, good job. Um, but like we'll develop a deep part, a deep partnership where we will work with you hand in hand to be that bridge, to make sure that we provide that quality care, that we will really build an LGBTQ welcoming place. Now that doesn't mean there aren't assisted livings who aren't doing that or there aren't people having that experience, but, but, um, again, it, it takes a deep organizational commitment, a, a commitment that extends beyond one leader or one staff member, right? Where the organization says, we're going to take this on. This is what's incredible about what um, is happening between Onlock and in open houses, the depth of partnership that, that we have going on here. So let this go out there always. If there is an assisted living who's ready, I'm down, call me, you know, my <laughs> number, um, you call me for other things. Uh, <laughs> um, but, but it would really take a commitment. And because the staff turnover in assisted living facilities is tremendous. Like that's the thing you have to understand is that generally uh, this is a real challenge we're going to face is the workforce in San Francisco who's doing the direct care for people as they age is a workforce who's facing all the income inequality difficulties that everyone else is facing. And so, you know, if you come in and you train staff and they're amazing, and then all those people are gone in three months, like the level of commitment that has to be there has to be beyond any single person. Um, And I think there's a tremendous opportunity there because again, I think if someone wanted to step forward and be the leader, guess what? There's lots of people who would want to move in there. Mm -hmm. Um, but, But we at least will not settle for anything less than, than that deep partnership and commitment that looks at everything from what do your bathroom signs look like to um, what kinds of questions do you ask staff when they apply to what is your electronic health record look like in terms of what options there are for gender and gender identity to, you know, all, all of those sort of components. So um, come on, seize the opportunity, somebody. Here I am. Yeah. Call me. Exactly. <laughs> we, we definitely will... Um... Give out your number. Oh yeah, great. In, That's in super. I got my cell. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Jason. Uh, yeah. You know, you brought up a couple things that really. I mean, just reading about you and your research, uh, there are a lot of questions. Uh, even as we age, we think about things like dementia, Alzheimer's, and you've done some extensive research. But the interesting thing about this panel and this group mm-hmm. of folks, you know, you've got Tom who really is working with with people. As a, as a nurse practitioner in home, um, Karen and, and Grace with their organizations are really trying to get, you know, uh, seniors out there and engage in their communities so they're not isolated. Now, talk to us about your research and yeah. as we age and this focus on keeping our seniors in their home and they're happy and they're independent and they're thriving and they're, they're healthy. Why that's so important, even if you know, we're experiencing some of the the illnesses that people are afraid of as we mm-hmm. age. Yeah, totally. And I think to reiterate, you know, what Karen and others have said, our community has both strengths uh, as well as needs. And so the strengths are they're very engaged. Uh, they're well connected with one another. They're advocating for policies and laws that we want changed. So we hear about, you know, San Francisco has a, a policy focused on non-discrimination in long-term care settings, as well as the state for LGBT people. So we do have some of those protections, but we need more of it. Um, but our research, what it's showing, what's unique for our community is that, especially for our seniors, is that they don't have the same support systems to rely on. So many of them uh, do not have children. They may have been disconnected from their family early in life, and often they may not be partnered. It was not legally recognized, or they may have lost a partner due to the HIV epidemic, or even just through aging, you know, a loss of a partner. Um, so they don't have the same sort of base to start with that we see for others. Uh, other unique aspects are fear. So they do have a history around experiencing discrimination in healthcare settings, in using social services. So there may be a reluctance to reach out and find those resources. Another challenge, and especially in San Francisco, that our research has shown is that a lot of the services are disjointed. So they don't talk to one another. And with the way the funding cycles work, you start a program and it may go away within six months. Mm. So some of our seniors don't want to go 
and put all the effort in to fill out all the paperwork, Mm -hmm. plus accessing the transportation to get there, and then find out, you know, in a couple of months that the service that they needed is gone. So that's a huge piece. Um, The other piece really, and Karen touched a lot about this, is they do not see themselves as seniors, they do not want your uh, canned senior program. You know, I don't want bingo. I don't want to listen to that music. Someone said Lawrence Welk. They're like, who is that? Don't you? My grandmother listened to that. Do not bring that junk to our space. Uh, so we've heard about that. I think Grace touched on training staff, but hiring staff, Mm -hmm. right? So especially our trans seniors are like, I want people like me there that understand my experience. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean that all your staff need to identify as trans, but make sure you have some people there that I link with, that know about my situation, that understand my unique health and aging concerns. So that's a lot of what we heard from them is really around like, make this for us. Don't give me what you already know works. That doesn't work for us. So the research is really leading towards that. And we're seeing it's across the board. And it also means we need special services for people that are aging with HIV. We need special services for people that have experienced trauma or may have mental health challenges because of that trauma. So when we're planning our programs, we really need to customize it. And what they want is a one-stop shop where basically it doesn't mean all the services need to be there, but you can connect me to everything I need because I don't want to spend months finding all of these different services and then find out I'm not eligible for this one. (laughs) I'm eligible for this one, but I have to go to South San Francisco, you know, and take BART or however I get there. That's not going to work. So that's really what they're asking for. And the research is really supporting those, especially around us creating this uh, the social day program. Mm-hmm. Just very quickly, do they really not want bingo, even if it's with like the sisters? <laughs> they do no, not indulgence? want bingo. No, we've solved this. <laughs> they, they did. They said yes to drag bingo. We have solved. Oh, that. Yes, that will That's, work. We found but don't it. Bring yeah. the don't bring the traditional bingo. No, John. <laughs> I can't top. <laughs> um, you, uh, Jason, you did mention uh, some of the special needs of uh, that trans seniors have. I mean, one of the things I read that really was I, struck me as very sad was we're talking about people who go, considering going back into the closet. Some trans folks going in and detransitioning and not taking their 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 the things yep. they need to take. Um, how? Is, we, is we anyone have stories out, of yeah. that. Yeah. We, One mean, participant said, this is another issue around home care. Uh, they said, so a home care aide came to my home and I am physically disabled. So I could not see what they were doing. And they threw away my girl clothes and then decided they wanted to pray for me. Yeah. You know, so <laughs> these are experiences. They are being discriminated against when they're using yeah. these services. And so it's a huge concern. And boy, does that, I assume, not make you even more worried about trying something else from someone else, mm-hmm. another service, and wondering what you're going to get there. Mm-hmm. I wanted some clarity. I mentioned it earlier, but in reading a lot of uh, all of your work, I mean, some the, the policies, the new decision-making that's emerging from each of your organizations is really focused on ensuring that um, as we age, you know, we have access to great health care if we're healthy. Uh, you know, th- that means we can stay in our homes longer. Mm-hmm. And and it's interesting because it, when you when you think about like even the two facilities that Open House has opened, which is incredible, many people then tend to think that that's where we're all going to end up one day is in in a facility or something that's specific to to aging, which I think is is not necessarily what all of you set to do or that you're working on. Uh, the focus is really making sure that seniors are able to be independent. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd love to hear, we'll start with Grace, mm-hmm. you know, because 
right? Like mm-hmm. access to health healthcare and, and, and policies would shape then create independent um, seniors. Like that's always been a part of Unlock for four years. Yeah, that's right. Uh, you know, I mean, I think that we all think about, you know, we want to stay living at home. I mean, every single conversation you have with people is that people want to stay at home and there actually isn't even enough housing for people to go to if it even was supportive and it had all of these things so our our work and our mission is about how do you bring the right kind of services to people at the right time to help them stay because they already have a home right so so let's try to really support that and so i think that what we see a lot of is um how you uh, bring together and put, uh, the, whether it's the higher level of care need that you put together care plans that would include home care services where staff are trained, that is in conjunction with your primary care physician and maybe rehab or other dis- disciplines that will help you uh, strengthen or keep your independence. And then there are programs like our 30 Street Senior Center, which is an all-engaging program that people come for meals, they come for exercise, they come for socialization. So I think one of the messages that we want to really just make sure people here is start start early. Start early in terms of taking care of your health. Start early in terms of trying to plan, you know, how you want to live your life. Uh, you know, you think about like emergency planning. You kind of want to make sure you know if you, you know, if you're with your family or your friends, where's the meeting place? Do you have the resources to be able to survive for three or five days or a week? And so it's no different when you're thinking about the trajectory of your health care and your, your aging life. You know, where do you want to be able to um, uh, live or, or be supported. And, and, you know, your earlier question, there aren't lists yet mm. that are out there, but talk to your neighbors, talk to your friends, find organizations who are doing work that you resonate with. And I think the one thing that I would say is help create demand because it will be a shame that we create this program that's this beautiful space and we don't have enough, you know, we don't have seniors that are ready to come when we're ready to start serving. Um, and I think that that's one of the things that actually has inspired us to why we're, we're developing this program in a very different way, uh, is through focus groups, is through conversations. We're here to provide the services and support you how you want to be supported, not the way we need to, you know. Right. And so, and we'll go through this journey together, but I think the earlier on the trajectory that we start, uh, the better, you know, your opportunity for quality of life and health out, uh, healthcare outcomes can be. Tom? Um, well, I was just remember, I, there is an, uh, in elder care, there's an aspect called uh, the cascade effect. And it's a little bit of this and a little bit of that that then tumbles a frail person into real illness. And uh, uh, projects like on lock that has daycare to really track people and support them. Also, uh, Meals on Wheels is mm-hmm. another great organization because mm-hmm. people are too frail sometimes to cook for themselves or to prepare a meal. And uh, Kaiser just gave uh, a half a million dollars to Meals on Wheels to rebuild their kitchen to continue to do their great services. So these things, which may seem sort of small, a neighbor checking on you every day or bringing you water in the heat. These are the things that can actually extend uh, a person's time in home. So it's anticipating, but it's also sort of just kind of keeping up on the little things before they cascade together. Thank you. Thank you so much for that. That brings us to the moment and the time in which our audience can engage with our panelists. So John has a roving mic, and we'll take your questions. And please address your question to the person you want um, to answer your question. So my question's to everyone. Does that work? <laughs> um, Jason, you mentioned trauma and about how our community doesn't feel like we're aging. And I love that you talk about aging in place. What's the secret, and you may or may not have it, to getting into the home when someone's been traumatized and probably our community more traumatized than many. That's probably not true either, but many in our community are traumatized. I don't want someone coming into my house. I'm afraid of the judgment. I'm afraid I'll have the experience that was described. Mm -hmm. What are some of the skills that are used to get in there to, to allow someone to come in and have an assessment? I mean, I mean, I think that the, um, you know, that the first thing is that, um, as a, someone outside, again, our tendency is to see like 
this person really needs help with um, eating and showering and right and um, and I think um, often what what we most need first is connection with another human that we feel safe with right which mm-hmm. could be the definition of community in, in some ways so um, you know, um, we open house, one of the programs we operate is called the friendly visitor and it's volunteers who get matched based on interest with seniors who have become, um, homebound, um, and disconnected from the LGBTQ community. And so we send out a volunteer and, and really that, that first intervention, right. is just about connection. It's about starting to feel like there's someone else who sees me. Um, and what I would say is rather than coming in with our clinical guns ablazing, right, to provide services, and again, I'm trained as a clinician, all those things, that, that we really have to start with, like, can I reform a connection with someone who I feel safe with? And then from there, we can start to talk about other things that you might need or bringing in other kinds of care. But, you know, all of us get worried and we want to send in, like, the entire care team all at once. And so the question is, like, can we start with that? Um, connection? Can we start with that that kind of work? And I I think a service area where there's lots of room for us to build and expand services is actually in this kind of idea of healthcare advocacy, right? People who would go with people to appointments, people who would be there when the home care worker comes in so that if they start throwing away the clothes, they can throw that person out the fucking door. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, Right? Because it's it's that sort of like, I'm here with you and we're going to figure this out. piece that I, I, I think we probably skip over a little bit. And I think all of us, again, in community, um, could think about, are we doing this for, for each other, um, as, as a starting place and open to others. Yeah. Anybody want to add to that? Um, the only thing I would say is that as we age, we will have events uh, where we may land in the hospital or the emergency room. And so it is, those are, uh, opportunities for uh, a lot of different medical providers to sensitively outreach and ask Mm -hmm. someone, what do you want? What's valuable to you? And if we continue to validate the individual, not just the disease, then I think that they might feel safer than in uh, accepting that referral. Yeah. Yeah. And then the other thing that I would add, I mean, trying to meet people at almost the lowest threshold, which would be is it through socialization, uh, you know, a meal together that just helps to build that trust? Because mm-hmm. when you're the most vulnerable and you have some healthcare event that you now need care for, the level of, um, you know, of uh, interaction and, and almost privacy on some level, you're the most vulnerable when your health is failing and you feel like you need even more help than some of those initial steps of just getting connected with people. So again, I'll kind of, you know, remind us that just being able to, to connect with whoever your peer group community is and staying connected because the social isolation, as you were talking about the cascading just starts to trickle down and so many other things can really impact your health and your condition when you start losing connection. So that's one of the reasons why I think that the, the, the level of the programming that we're building out right now is about just the social connection. So it'll be a little bit, you know, the threshold lower uh, on the scale of uh, uh, healthcare needs, um, but really about just staying connected. And then as your needs continue to increase or build, we'll have other wraparound services or other programs that will be available to support people. I'll add one thing is just, it's also the research shows the value of trauma-informed care training. So Mm -hmm. training your volunteers, your staff, you know, it's focused on this person-centered approach where you can understand sort of where the person's coming from and how you're going to meet their needs, but also address kind of the challenges that they have from this trauma. So being very open. So it's really making sure workers, volunteers are trained how to do that. We have a question over here, and I'll work my way over it. Grace and Karen, um, thinking of prototyping for for this, have you thought about advanced healthcare on the sea and uh, gay cruising and bringing seniors out to, to meet each other uh, in untraditional ways that are fun like that? No, I haven't thought about that. No, I think I mean I think you're getting at something though, right? Which is like the typical models of how we've done this haven't worked and um, make no mistake about it, socialization and feeling connected is as important a healthcare factor as any other thing you have going um, as you age. So 
um, yeah, I'm, I'm ready to start it. We'll have drag bingo on the top deck um, <laughs> every day. Yeah. Great. Back here. Uh, my name is Tom and I've been, uh, although I'm very familiar with, uh, unlock and, uh, open house, I have a very specific, uh, issue I'd like to bring up with Tom at Kaiser. And I was relieved to hear that you are working Kaiser South rather than the city. I, uh, had the unfortunate experience of, of, well, first of all, let me say I've been a Kaiser patient for 40 years, and I think highly of my own physician. However, I and my partner, 40 years, uh, my partner who passed three years ago in a Kaiser bed after two weeks of hospitalization, I believe that anyone who has a Kaiser connection has to be the aggressor has to step up. Our last two weeks, I say are because I was there as much as he was. The first week was fine. I thought I would have him home. The second week, the attitude was, that bed needs to be occupied by somebody. Let's do something else. I was willing to take him home. I was willing to put him in hospice. That second week was hell. The only thing that gave me some comfort was that one of the primary, not a primary care physician, but one of the specialists saw the dilemma we were in and eventually got him in a room of his own. If she had not stepped forward, he would have spent the last week of his life in a shared room with other visitors coming and going. It would have been miserable. So I say to Tom, and I say to anyone who has a Kaiser connection, you be the aggressor. Kaiser wants its bed. It wants, it wants the exit engineered by them, not by you. So I say be aggressive with Kaiser for yourself and for anyone else that you have as a friend at Kaiser. Well, I'm really sorry you had a terrible experience, um, and uh, I, I don't know the circumstances of that, and I, I'm just really sorry for you. I can tell that that's very painful. I think that uh, uh, certainly your comment to be assertive and aggressive whenever our care needs are not met, is vital. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that Karen was making a good point about that earlier. And I don't even think it's specific to Kaiser. It's every emergency room, every doctor appointment, every hospitalization. We have to be there to defend ourselves and what our goals are. Um, that's kind of why I started saying, think about what your goals are earlier. And uh, one of our goals in a palliative intervention, which for, for your partner may have happened, should have or could have happened many years ago, is what would you guys want if this happened? Or what would you do if this happened? So that you're not traumatized at the moment and trying to sort out what to do. So I, I can't speak to the specifics, but I know that all of us in the medical community could do a lot better. And that's what we're trying and working to do. I'm actually going to make you talk about that some more. Um, um, I, uh, I grew up in San Francisco, and um, I was here um, during the crisis in the 90s. Um, lost friends, lost my partner. Um, during that time, um, uh, I, all I could say is um, I wish that would never happen to any generation ever again. Mm -hmm. But the level of care that my friends have gone through um, I've seen heroes step up to the plate um, during a time where um, the medical industry cared nothing for us. Um, and I, I've seen true, genuine care um, and compassion. And I've seen the burnout from those people that have provided that compassion. Mm -hmm. um, my question is, um, how are you going to entice um, that new f workforce to back you up to provide this quality care for LGBTQ seniors. I can touch on something just from the research. So your point, we heard this from participants and um, 
one of the recommendations from one of our, actually a caregiver who had cared for people during the 90s, uh, was about going back to our grassroots movements mm -hmm. and really relying, it's our organizations, but it's also people like you, others here in our community to help. So going back, that was really what was unique then was that the community came together to really help support one another during that time. And we haven't had that same momentum uh, with our aging community. And so we need to rely on those strengths. As I had mentioned, we have this unique strength that's part of our community. And if we can rely on that to care for one another, especially as we age, um, I think that's how we can address this. We have time for a couple more questions. Yeah. So if, right, if right you can address your question to one person, <laughs> and then hopefully we'll give out contact information so you can stay well, in we'll touch. We'll try and behave and all. <laughs> My question's around economic disparity and access to health care. Now, San Francisco being the very expensive city it is, we know that there's a real difference in access to health care if you're rich or poor, especially more relevant to a community like this one in this room. Mm -hmm. um, so given that, how can we in the room and the city really ensure that health care is affordable? Or remains affordable while we're embarking on these new um, endeavors because healthcare is not cheaper now. It's not going to get cheaper soon. So how can we all, you know, participate even Dallas and the city? Somebody who wants to really, really take that question. I mean, I, you've been chosen. I, yeah, yeah I, I guess that was a question Solve for me. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I think that for, certainly for Unlock, we build on the foundation of our uh founders, which is that we actually pursued um, trying to create a solution and find uh, funding for programs that really were for underserved or uh, uh, populations. And so in particular, when we started this program nearly 50 years ago, there were people who uh, were otherwise being sent off to nursing homes that were not culturally mm -hmm. sensitive. They didn't, they left their communities in San Francisco. They were being placed in, in, in uh, other communities where they didn't have an identity. They couldn't communicate. They couldn't get the foods that were natural and comforting for them. Um, and there was a real vision and determination by our organization to do the right thing. And so, uh, uh, you know, it was about policy change. It was about payment reform. It was about getting out ahead, doing something that wasn't being done yet, um, and creating an evidence-based model and program, and then influencing. We replicated across the country and said, this is the right thing to do for people. Mm -hmm. um, and in fact, it was, and we did, and became a Medicare program. And so I think that certainly the way that we try to um, bridge uh, this gap is uh, being able to be courageous get out in front to answer these, uh, create solutions and answer questions that um, aren't being addressed. Uh, and so it's really a, a huge body of work that we're about to undertake at Unlock. And we have, again, populations and underserved communities very much in mind to see how we will make a difference again. Okay. I think we have time for and one I, more question. I think question. you invest in more social determinants of health models right. and you show how they save massive amounts of money because people aren't sitting in emergency rooms and hospitals and, and nursing homes. And mm -hmm. you, you can line up the incentives, which helps motivate mm -hmm. people um, too. So, Yeah. I've read recently that Alzheimer's has become like cataracts. Everyone's going to get it if you live long enough. Like prostate cancer. We're looking at, in the next decade, all of the boomers are going to be over 65. That's one in five people. In the next 20 years, we'll have more seniors than we will have children in the United States. What are we doing about that mass of people that are not only becoming seniors, but becoming memory Impaired, yeah. Mm -hmm. Memory impaired. And the cost of having facilities for dementia patients. I heard you talk about training for your caregivers. How about setting up training for the caregivers of the patients at home to mm -hmm. kind of spread this around? I think that if people are aging in place, aging at home, if their family knew how to care for them... They could stay at home longer. But I don't think you can stay at home after a point. Where do those people go? 
You want to take that? Well, I think it is true that we've got a gray wave coming, and I'm not sure that um, we are prepared for that. You're correct. Uh, I do believe it is possible to die at home of Alzheimer's. Mm -hmm. Um, I absolutely think you're touched on a vital point, which is training the family uh, in how to provide the care. Much of it is not skilled, but it is supportive, and we can do it. Uh, And I think that's part of what we're trying to do here is stimulate a community Mm -hmm. to reach out to isolated folk so that we can all come together to provide this care. Does anybody want to add some more to that? Yeah, I'll I'll just add. I mean, I think that all of us have to be curious curious enough to to want the education to understand what's happening to our loved ones or our immediate family members as they age and chronic conditions start to set in because they compound. And sometimes we think we're invincible, right? None of us really think we're as, you know, we're old or we're, we'll ever get to the stage that, that we might need that kind of help, but it's actually okay to ask for help. And there are people who are really, you know, driven to wanting to be part of the solution. Um, I think that for the, um, uh, absolutely for the caregivers, uh, the family caregivers of people living with dementia need a tremendous amount of help. And I think that one of the things that we've always felt um, a little, I'll say I've always felt a little bit sad about is that sometimes people will try to do as far as they can, as much as they can uh, before they come and ask for help. And so the level of burnout is so high. And so we could really be reaching and touching so many more people earlier um, to provide that support so that living at home and the, and the challenges of being the, the informal or the family caregiver doesn't have to be so um, difficult into that path all the way up to that point. Uh, we're really proud, actually, I'll just put a little plug. We're really proud that within our PACE program, um, uh, we've got four centers here in San Francisco. Uh, one of them we just renovated uh, and created a very specialized memory care center. Uh, we've had a lot of foundation and individual contributor support to be able to renovate a space that's specifically designed for the intimacy of a small group of people. Understanding and really knowing how do you help support people uh, who have uh, the range of uh, onset dementia as it as it passes through different phases. Um, and so how do we create that kind of setting? And so we've really committed, uh, we just opened it last uh, last month um, for people people who are in the PACE program to really benefit from that kind of specialized training of staff, a specialized uh, setting that really is more designed to lower stimulation, engage with um, activities, provide caregiver support. And so we look forward to really building that out. But that's the, for us, that's the beginning of how do we really uh, improve and increase our um, way of reaching out to both people who are living with dementia and their caregivers so that they can stay part of the care. Mm-hmm. The questions are great, and, and as you can see as a community, you know, these are um, issues that we really, really care about. And I think part of the solutions or the plans to create and provide the solutions is to bring our communities together. No longer is it a subject in which it's singular or that it's just one you know, demographic versus another demographic. I think the best shot, the best chance that we have as far as the future goes is us coming together and putting our heads together. So I'm really excited and proud for Unlock and Open House for your first ever senior daycare. Uh, or um, and, and we didn't even get to Whatever really we call touch. That, but yeah, okay. Uh, sorry, <laughs> day program. Whatever we call it, yeah. There's a lot going on today. There's a lot that we touched on. But that there's also now research backing us up in terms of uh, including LGBTQ and the Alzheimer's and dementia yep. conversation. And then we have... Folks like Tom, who identifies as LGBTQ, but has experienced since, you know, the days in which uh, HIV was a, a death sentence for us. And here we are in 2019 going on 2020 um, and you being able to shape, you know, care of what that looks like. So we'll end with uh, if each of you can just mention where people can get more information or be a part of your organization or get in contact with you. That would be great. We'll start with Tom. Um well, people are welcome to email me at tom.grothe, G-R-O-T-H-E, at kp.org. Happy to begin the conversation. Yeah. I'm going to put a plug out. I have a website. It's rainbowsofaging.org. 
a lot of my partnerships with everyone, I'm putting information out there. So we're not just doing research for the purpose of research. We're bringing it back to the community. So we have trainings on there. We have some of our recent findings, but also we're connecting you to resources. So you can also email me at jason.flat at ucsf.edu. And finally, we have a recently funded center at UCSF uh, focused on LGBTQ uh, clinical practice and research. And so we're going to continue to make efforts to improve the research, but also the work with the community so we can serve our seniors and others. Um, well, I have my card. I won't try and spell my name, um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but I have my card if you want it. Um, but you can also go on our website, which is um, www.openhousesf.org. Um, and when you do that, you will, on the front page, see a couple of very fantastic pictures of Grace and I, just real headshot <laughs> specials. Um, and you'll see the press release that announced, you'll see the press release that announced our partnership. And there's a learn more um, link that you can hit and you can actually sign up there to hear updates as we continue to develop this program. And we're serious. If you have ideas on um, what you'd like to see in this program we're developing, um, we're using a user informed program design process. We're have talked to a hundred seniors through the work with Jason. Um, we have an ongoing group where we're designing this with the community. So we want you involved. We want your ideas. We want you to tell us all the terrible reasons that drag bingo won't work. Um, and, and Give you can, an you can find us, you can find us there and, and look for us in pride, uh, contingent number, contingent number five, uh, generation, generation out. Um, we'll be up there causing trouble. Great. Uh, and then you can learn more about Onlock at www.onlock.org. Uh, and it'll tell you about all the programs and services that we offer. Um, and we're here not only in San Francisco, but also Santa Clara County and then in the Tri-City area of, of Alameda County. So, And you can always come by and visit one of our centers. Uh, we've got some really great activities at our 30th Street, 30th and Dolores, uh, a really, really just grand time. So if you really want to have a little bit of a flavor of, of uh, our 30th Street Senior Center, please come. And we just want to give a shout out um, to the Commonwealth Club and to yes. Michelle in particular. There are not enough conversations happening about aging and particularly about LGBTQ aging. And there's a lot of queer people who avoid this topic. And Michelle is not one of them. She is an advocate and a supporter and a friend. And we appreciate it. We need more of this. Well, thank, thank you. you Michelle. Thank you. To be quite honest, I was just creating a, a new leads list for when uh, I need to I'd call you up and I'm going to move in with you and you know, <laughs> we'll take care of each other, right? Yeah. Well, thank you again for joining us here at the Commonwealth Club. We have great programs next week um, for Pride Week. We're doing a celebrating LGBTQ families next Thursday at noon. And then on Friday, we have a special program with Lauren Morelli, who's the new executive producer of the new tales of the city on netflix so very different version and a new perspective from uh, a member of our lgbtq community who's not homestad mopin but but i hear that they work very very close together and so it'd be interesting to hear from her you can check out the schedule at michellemeow.com there's still some food and a little bit of wine left enjoy what we have left uh, for a little bit before john starts shooting you out <laughs> uh, and and connect and hang out. Thank you. Happy Pride. Thanks.